Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, hello, how's it going? Yeah, I know, but welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, including this one, a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discuss how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. Of the many things that have since been canceled or postponed due to COVID-19, the biggest for comedy was the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's the world's largest arts festival, usually taking place over 25 days in Edinburgh, Scotland, with like 60,000 performers spread out over 3,000 venues. Though it's not exclusively comedy, it is at the center of British comedy and has helped define how many comedians in the UK and the world in general approach writing. We talked a little about this in the Ronnie Chang episode. So instead of here in the States, where a comedian starts with zero and builds an hour through a series of 10-minute sets, UK comedians start with a full hour that they refine night after night at Edinburgh and then spend the year touring. This week's guest, Daniel Sloss, is actually from Edinburgh and made a name for himself at the Fringe Festival, which he started performing at as a teen and has since done 10 full shows. The joke we discussed this episode, which was a bit of a breakthrough for Daniel, had a long evolution. An idea started as a tweet in 2012 got told in multiple Edinburgh shows, growing as he continued to have new experiences with it, including an eye-opening trip to America in 2014, finally ending as part of his 2015 show, Dark. But that's not it, because the film version of Dark wouldn't come out on Netflix until 2018. That means Daniel worked on and performed multiple fringe shows in between. Dark is a special of dark comedy that defends, if not celebrates, the value of dark comedy, rooted in Daniel's own personal history of losing his sister at a young age. In terms of film specials, Jigsaw, also on Netflix, is about dating and marriage and ends with a plea for people to end bad relationships. As we discussed in the episode, a truly unbelievable amount of people took his advice. His most recent special, X, which came out in 2019 on HBO, uses Daniel's unique ability to discuss difficult subjects to talk very directly about toxic masculinity and sexual assault. It is really powerful. But all comedians start somewhere, and that comedian started with this joke. 
Again, this is from Daniel's 2018 taping of his 2015 Edinburgh show Dark from a joke that started in 2012. We talked to Daniel in February of this year. So, here is Daniel Sloss. A couple of years ago, I went to Indiana, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful state. The people there are very kind, except for one of them. <laughs> one of my favorite jokes I have, now, me personally, I've always been an atheist, and that's just because both my parents are educated. And <laughs> I, look, I grew up in a very religious family. I have an uncle that's a minister. He's five foot two. We call him a mini-star. <laughs> Religion was something that you were allowed to poke fun of when I grew up. And then I came to America and I'm like, oh, it'll be the same here. <laughs> I phoned up an American agent and I'm like, I can tell the atheist joke in Indiana, right? And she said, under no circumstance, tell that joke in Indiana. So I went to Indiana and I told the joke, right? Because wet paint... That is wet paint. That, that's why they put the sign there, just to let you all know. No, I'm used to having jokes I do not go down as well as I wanted them. What I was not used to was the reaction I got as I got to my first punchline of many in Indiana. Got to the first punchline. 40 out of 100 people immediately left the room. Right? Yeah, and not in the British way of like, oh, this isn't for us. We should quietly and respectfully leave. <laughs> They left in the American way of like, fuck you, and gone. <laughs> and it's important to note that the 60 people that remained weren't all fans, okay? <laughs> Some of them were just very stubborn. Like they hated me, but not as much as they loved sitting down. <laughs> that was a real moral dilemma for them. They're like, this is awful, but I do love this. This is, this is excellent. Now, I'm not an intelligent person by any stretch, so I was like, oh, maybe I'll win them over with the harsher punchlines. <laughs> oh, that'll get them. No, not at all. <laughs> there was a man in the front row who was so upset by the joke, his only way of letting me know how angry he was was to lift up his shirt, show me his gun, and say, you're lucky I don't shoot you. Now, where I come from, we don't call that luck. We call that society. <laughs> I run my mouth off for every day. Never been shot in the fucking head. Right? But I've never seen a gun in my life. In my life at this point. And it's just, there. it's pointing at his dick. I've always found that weird. <laughs> oh, fucking gay. Is that why you're all circumcised? Just, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> and I'm terrified. I've never seen a gun before. And this is what I love about your country, right? Because I think there is one stereotype that is true for most of you. And it's the friendliness, right? There is that just sense of friendliness. There was another American man there. He was realistically as upset by this joke as this man. But he stood up for me. And he did so in the most American way possible. Proper big American, big beard. Looked like he ate pancakes and shat freedom. <laughs> right? And he stood up and went, hey, you. Hey, little boy. Bit condescending. Little boy. Right? Hey. I may not agree with what you're saying. Loved you in Home Alone. Thought that was spot on. Um, <laughs> I mean, I agree with you saying, but this is America. This is the land of the free speech. So you keep telling your joke and you just ignore him. Because if he shoots you, I'll shoot him. <laughs> Not before? <laughs> like, if you're taking requests, 
before really works for me. Now, I will tell you the joke. Obviously, I've not learned any lessons. It was a very simple premise for a joke, as are all my jokes. It was basically, you know, as a parent, uh, now I'm not a parent, but I do like speaking on behalf of people because I'm white, middle class and male. And that's what my people do. I imagine Christmas morning as a parent's very difficult, especially if you have young children. It's Christmas morning, it's 7 a.m., they burst out of their rooms, they run downstairs, they're so happy, they're so filled with joy. It's Christmas Day! It's the most magical day of the year. To them, magic literally happened overnight. They wished for shit, shit's there. What the fuck? That's insane, I'm seven years old, but I'm pretty sure that that tree shits presents. But you as a parent, you know, the time, the money, the organization, the stress that's gone into making this moment so special. But when you see that smile on their stupid fucking face, <laughs> makes it all worth it. Then they look up at you with those big blue eyes that you hope resemble yours. <laughs> and who do they thank? Santa. Oh, thank you, Santa, for these presents. Mummy and Daddy, isn't Santa amazing? And as a parent not willing to shatter your child's imagination, you must have to stand there being like, yeah! Yeah, no, he worked really hard this year, didn't he? The fuck? <laughs> you know that disappointment that parents feel in that moment? That is exactly how doctors feel whenever you thank God. <laughs> Mr. Darcy, we are delighted to announce that your cancer has gone into remission. Oh my God, this is, this is wonderful news. I know it's been a long, hard journey, but we got there in the end and we all couldn't, couldn't be happier for you. Oh, oh, thank the Lord. <laughs> what? No, sorry, it's just funny. I just couldn't see his name anywhere on this fucking chart. Um, I can see my name right at the top there. Dr. Michael sat with you through two and a half weeks of chemotherapy. You're welcome, by the way. Dr. Connors, her name's there. She spent six hours cutting a tumor out your fucking lung. I've got the names of all the uh, nurses and all the radiologists here. All their names are on this. Can't seem to find the Lord's name anywhere on it. I tell you what, maybe in my haste to give you the good news, maybe I skim past it. I'll have, I'll have another look. But, 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 but the Lord sent you. Ah! Ah! I don't think he did. He certainly didn't chip in for that medical degree. In fact, if I remember correctly, you came to me, I diagnosed you, and then I specified the treatment. In fact, if I cast my memory even further back, he's the one that gave you cancer. <laughs> Why? Maybe because you're an ungrateful cunt. I'm here with Daniel Sluss. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited. So um, I want to set the table a little bit. So your first Edinburgh Fringe was in 2008. Yeah, first start, solo show. Your yeah, first yeah. solo show in 2008. Uh, you talk pretty harshly about how you were as a comedian for your first handful of years. Ah, shite. Uh, yeah. How how long were you bad? And when you say bad, what does that mean to you? I wasn't bad. I was still better than most <laughs> other people. <Sure. laughs> uh, no, I was just... 
there was no. It was what I described as porridge comedy. Yeah. There was no substance to it. It was just. Uh, I was. I was. A young person doing a very good impression <laughs> of a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have any fucking life experience, said the 29-year-old. Um, so I just thought, yeah, when I look back at the material now, the jokes were good. They worked as jokes, but that's all they were. There was yeah. no depth to them. Uh, there was no creativity. Nothing was challenging. Nothing was different. It was bland and it was flavorless, but still filling. The, the audiences liked it. Um, you Can know. you think of a joke or, or that typified that that certain flaws, that sort of thought, thoughtlessness? Yeah, my uh, one of my first jokes was about my mum's tits. My mum has my mum has large breasts, and the reason I know that is because I have eyes, and I got bullied for it in high school. <laughs> so I was did had a joke which was talking about my friends always make fun of me because. I get bullied at school because my mum's got big breasts and I, if, I don't know what's worse about it. Getting bullied for my mum having big breasts or the look of pride and satisfaction on my father's face when I tell him <laughs> I'm being bullied about it. You know, you, you, as you said, you were successful early on. People were laughing. What made you realise you needed, wanted to be better? Because uh, I fucking hated my audience. I yeah. didn't like them. I watched. I did. Uh, I got lucky enough to. One of my early breaks was on a show called Paul O'Grady, which is essentially pre-watershed in the UK, and they stuck me on. And it, they, you know, they censored my material in the sense that I wasn't allowed to swear. None of the rude bits were allowed in. And then I went on stage, and it was just people were getting just upset by swearing, which mm-hmm. to me is so fucking pathetic. <laughs> It's so fucking pathetic to be offended by swearing. It's 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 like being a, it's like being allergic to water. Yeah. It's the blandest fucking thing, yeah. and you're upset by that. How do you expect me to respect any part of you as a person if a simple fucking word, not even said with malice, upsets you? Mm. Fuck off. Yeah. I have no interest in you as a human being. You are utterly beneath me. Yeah. Um, I ju- and, and, and people were getting upset. I don't like how much you swear. I don't like when he people people going. You, comedy's getting very blue. You go, oh fuck off! I hated them. I hated them so far. The idea, 2012, that comedy's getting so blue. Aye, it was just and 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 the joke that we're going to be discussing. I remember it was first time I started doing it. it was the first joke where I, there was depth to it. It was smart, and I was like, it was the first joke other comedians were jealous of. Yeah, and nothing makes you feel more like a fucking comedian <laughs> when other comedians go, "Oh, fuck you for that joke. Fuck you. That's you know, I wish I'd written that routine." But I remember being on stage at the Edinburgh Festival doing it on my like sixth or seventh show, and people would get up and walk mm-hmm. out like twenty or thirty people a show because they'd seen me on telly being a young cheeky chappy, heavily censored, not swearing, not doing anything too taboo, and then I'm on. Uh, stage telling, you know, cancer jokes and there's no God and people would leave. And it was yeah. really hard. It was a hard decision to make because I was like, it, it, your neediness <laughs> to want to appease to everyone. I had to really put my foot down on myself and go, no, like you don't want those people as fans. The yeah. ones that are staying, cultivate them, keep them, find your audience. Don't try and be so broadly fucking appealing. So I, I was I want to sort of set a sort of timeline of this. So in 2012, you tweeted, you know how parents get annoyed by Santa getting all the credit for Xmas presents. That's how doctors feel when you thank God. So that's 2012. Oh, oh, so I, I, I tested it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember writing it down on my phone. Maybe I was tweeting. Well, maybe <laughs> I was. Did. Yeah. Um, 
I remember exactly where I was as well. I was in the car on the way back up from Kendal in the UK. And I was, um, I think my dad was driving and I said, I said the joke to him. And he was like, that's very funny. I always try to put material on my yeah. pants. And uh, yeah, I think, I don't even think it banged on Twitter. Like, I don't think. Looking at the numbers, it does not. <laughs> did it not? No. But that's, I knew I was right. I knew it was funny. I want to back up and sort of provide some context about um, your history of religion. You talk about how you were raised by atheist parents, but you do have religious relatives, including an uncle who was a minister. Mm -hmm. When did you realize you're an atheist as a kid, like in so much as other people were not? Um, it was when, or when my sister died. Like I think before then, I was religious in the sense that you know I had no choice. The reason most people are religious is because their parents are religious. Now my dad was has always been atheist because he's a man of intellect. Uh, whereas my mum was raised by religious parents, so mm -hmm. she always was. And fucking man, the Christians offered so many good things. I was like, a camp you could go to where you could ride horses and shoot guns. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be, I'll be Christian. This is great. Let's do this. Um, I didn't believe, you know, I, I was just young. I remember the stories and there's a God and you pray to him and grandparents would take me to church every now and again. And then uh, my sister with cerebral palsy died and I went, oh, oh, there's no God. <laughs> like that's, there's just, there's just not one. Yeah. Like, of course there's not. And um, I remember that's when my mum lost her faith as well. Like, because not even a bad way, but my dad sat down and was like, you don't, you don't get to believe in God anymore. You just don't. You can't. Yeah. I can't. I can't and I can't respect you if you do. Like, like your innocent daughter died. You do not get to believe in God anymore. And my mum was like, "Yeah, no, it makes sense. Like, there just, <laughs> there just isn't." And uh, and then from then on, religion, it was like a fucking wake up. It just infuriated me. Yeah, it just. It was, I no longer respected it. I didn't want it to be at the fourth. Like, people would be like, it's personal. And I'm like, it's fucking rarely personal. Mm -hmm. It's rarely fucking personal. You, I, I listen to a lot of interviews with you. And, and what's interesting is sort of around the themes that you're going to be talking, you talk about that theme to everyone that will allow you to talk about it. Yeah. So like in 2015, 2014, 2016, you're just talking about religion in every single conversation I can find. Is that sort of how you're starting, which is... I want to write material around religion. I'm going to keep on talking about it and and start with the ideas you're looking to express before just the sparks. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's conversation. I like I like you know spirited uh, debate. I like uh, dialogue and stuff, and and it's a good way of working out what your opinions are. Like when I started being a better comic was when I wasn't writing jokes. I wasn't wasn't sitting down with a blank mm -hmm. bit of paper and like I'm going to write a joke about this. I was talking about things I was passionate about. And the more passionate I was about something, and the funnier I was about it. Yeah, it just, it made me, it was in my head more than I, there were sometimes you say things and you just go, oh, I didn't know I thought that. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't know that was my opinion. And when you say things over and over and over again, they naturally get more tight and more succinct and, you know, yeah, yeah bringing it up all the time and discussing it openly really helps me flesh out ideas. So you, you tweet this, which, you know, you tweet things, one tweets things, and you're like, now I'm done with it. I've had this stupid idea. What made it stick with you? What made you like, oh, I need, I need to work on this to make this something I'd actually talk about on stage? Because I knew it would fucking piss people off. And I knew I knew that line would piss off people I hated. <laughs> like the, the, the very, very zealot religious people. I knew it would fucking wind them up. 
and I and I want and I wanted to do that because they you know they wound me up all the yeah, time yeah. and I'm like tit for tat. This is you're going to go around shouting your stupid shit. I'll go around shouting my stupid shit. In comedy, you know, writing is a broad term. What does at this point, what does writing look like? So that that time, I would always my process was I would type it out on a I would type it out on a computer, and then like I would uh, print it out and like sort of rehearse it just mm. to get all the lines in my head to make sure that my delivery, man, I'm I'm talking like holding my mother's comb, <laughs> looking in the mirror, fucking typical rehearsing. That's yeah, what yeah. I used to do, and. Because my my mum made me have a work ethic because I still mm-hmm. lived at home with my mum. She was like, if you're going to fucking do this for a job, you're going to do this as a fucking job. She works from home. She's like, you're coming downstairs and you're doing it nine at five in front of the computer. So we sat in there write my jokes and the only time I was allowed up to was to go and you know <laughs> practice in front of the mirror. And, um, so it would get in my head and then I'd record the set. I would do a set. I would do it on stage that night and then I would sit down with the bit of paper and uh, whenever there was a laugh, I'd do a tick on the bit of paper and we'd like, laugh there, laugh there, laugh there. And if like I fu- if I fluffed a line or something, it was like a squiggle. I'd be like, you need this is you need to perform this better. This needs to be tighter. And what that let me know is you can see where the punchlines are. You go right, they laugh there, they laugh there, but then they don't laugh again to there. So either there needs to be three jokes in that point, or this needs to be tightened down mm. as much as possible because I want it to be fucking gag heavy like my favourite comedy that I ever laughed at was the stuff where you're where you're struggling to breathe you know that fucking laugh that you get like when you're young and you're staying over at your friend's house and Mm -hmm. it's past midnight and you're not allowed to be up and you're just you can't breathe tears are streaming down your face like that that's what I was wanting to do so I want to make it um punchy as fuck but when I started doing this joke there was different levels of it which was there were silences where I was just going no leave those in yeah, yeah. like those that, that that having them be shocked by these bits is good I've, I've evoked a reaction therefore I'm in control of a reaction I'm, I'm in now I'm in charge of your emotions it was a very stupid thing of you to do to let me know I could upset mm-hmm. you and now and now I'm in command. So the the joke has, I would say, sort of two sections. When you play the joke as is, it just sort of starts being like, you know, Christmas morning, and you're just talking about that. What do you what do you like about that style, where it's sort of a, a longer build up to what it's actually about? Because because up until up until the punchline, it's not a horrible joke. Yeah, it's a lovely, it's a lovely story. <laughs> it's you're evoking childhood memories or joyous memories of parent. There, there are religious people in the audience going, ah, oh, what a lovely joke about Christmas. Ah, the Christ like holiday, the best time of the fucking year where we all pray to, you know. That. Yeah, they that it, it's a. I didn't even think about how Christmas is a religious holiday. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. part of the joke. But it's it evokes this. This is going to be a nice joke. I'm listening, and then I punch you in the fucking face. Yeah, it's interesting because there's something about the structure of the, the first half, which, you know, it can somewhat be a joke, which is like, oh, it's, you know, these kids are ungrateful. It's actually very similar. I don't know if you know the Bill Cosby thank, thank you mom joke. He has a joke about a, a father raising his son to play football and he trains mm-hmm. him every day and he wakes up every weekend to show him how to throw a football right. and then he like wins the big game and the reporter is like do you have anything to say he goes thanks mom oh great okay <laughs> so yeah, this yeah. joke has a similar like that and you're like i guess that's 
and then yeah. it's a complete but it, it, sideways. Yeah, but it happens. It happens all the time. It happens in sports. You get, you get like you get you have UFC fighters or boxers, right? Who've yeah. just won a fight, and their entire coaching staff are behind them, who like missed missed their kids' pageants to help this person win a fight, and they're like, "I'd like to thank God," and you're like, "No, you don't. No, no, you ungrateful prick. Like that's not who did it." And then so then it so then the. What's interesting is sort of there's the metaphor, which is a scene, and then the act out, which is also a scene. Mm-hmm. It, it's I, – I, 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 it would be too much to say like, oh, this is more of a Edinburgh or UK style, but it is more stagey than I think an American comedian wouldn't – it just so clearly shows that you wrote something and prepared it. Uh, yeah, and it's something that I've – like the first time I came to America, it blew my mind that comedians just went on stage with no fucking material. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you? What are, what are you? What are you doing? And it's because over here there is no. None. Of, not to sound like a dick, but none of you. None of you ever feared your audience, mm-hmm. and it, and it shows. Like American audiences are so. From the second you walk out on stage, it's let's give this guy a chance. Like, why, why would he be on stage if he wasn't good yeah. at what he did? Whereas a comedian, you're like, no, no, there's so many shit comedians out there. Like, And in the UK, if you do not make that audience laugh, like we did gong shows. I don't know if that's a concept here. Not for a very long time. Right. Well, gong shows are pretty much the only way you could get spots at like the comedy store in Manchester was you go on stage, you've got five minutes. If you last the five minutes, mm-hmm. you get you can come back maybe and do another five at a real night. But there's three people in the audience with their cards. And if those three cards go out, you get gonged off halfway through your fucking set. It's a horrible, terrifying thing. You've got to make the audience laugh from the fucking get-go, especially when I was young. Like, I walked on set. Mm -hmm. I look young now. I look like sperm when I was 17. Like, I was so youthful that they didn't trust that I was going to be funny and yeah. I had to you just had to, you had I had always had to be the best in the bill I always had to just punchline 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 and you know and to know you know to know that the jokes are funny I had to put the work in and then I come over here and comedians who I love like Bill Burr he said a bit of advice on a podcast once and it's a bit of advice that I can't take on board and it kills me because I love him so much but it was he was like you wouldn't you wouldn't rehearse a conversation in front of your friends in the pub and I go well no Bill but we can't all you know be as good as you like yeah. it's not that natural but also I do kind of practice it in conversations <laughs> yeah. it comes up something about an American style had evolved where especially over time by by the time you're coming up by the by the 21st century where you wanted to seem like it was not rehearsed, even if it was rehearsed. I but that's I, that's that's the con. That's yeah. the con is convincing. For me, or it's always been you have to convince the audience that this is the first time you've told the fucking joke. But what I think happened is you've got all these amazing comedians who do that mm-hmm. so well, and then you have this generation of dumb comedians go, oh. You just go on and talk and you go, no, you fucking idiot. No, you, no, you, you've missed the entire point. The point is these, Dave Chappelle's, you know, well, Dave Chappelle's a bad example. He probably is just saying those things. But that's after, you know, years and years yeah, of yeah. what he's doing. But all the rest of, you know, these specials where you watch them being effortless, the reason they're effortless, I believe, is because it is so fucking tight. It is so ingrained. They know every single thing and that's how they can make it look unrehearsed. You've talked about how Edinburgh is like doing two years on the road in 30 days. You're doing it every night. So you're doing this and people are are, are walking out. Over those course of 30 days, 
how's the joke evolving and how are you evolving to sort of like get through that? By the end of 30 days, what are you now as this comedian? Because now there's, uh, I'm becoming better because I'm learning slowly that it doesn't matter. It's not about appeasing everyone. And also, like in, a, in the lamest possible way, it felt fucking naughty. Like the one, <laughs> the people that stay yeah. in the audience with you, they're fucking, they're also thrilled that people yeah, walk yeah. out. That makes it funnier for them. Yeah. You know, people getting annoyed by this. And, and the reason they're getting annoyed isn't because the joke's offensive or anything like that. The reason they're getting upset is because your faith isn't as strong as you thought it was, mm-hmm. right? I, I believe that the world is round. You can make fun of me for believing that the world is round all you want. I'll never be upset by you insulting the me because the world's round because that's how strong my faith is. I insult your fucking religion. Why do you get pissed off? Because I made you doubt it. I rocked your belief. And that's a level of power. So I got more confident in yeah. it. It was the, you know... I like having a swagger on stage. I like the, you know, the fucking Jessel Nick chest pumped out. <laughs> I'm the greatest person in this room. I, Because that's so fun to, and it allows you to get yeah. away with so much more. So I was, I think I was learning that. I was really making the transition from being the, hey, like, here's some awkward things and I get embarrassed by this shit <laughs> to, oh, now I'm more firm in my opinions and 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 I don't care sincerely if you're upset because if you are upset good yeah so you jump to 2014 you're now going to do shows in america um you ask your american agent if you should do this joke what happens i (laughs) go step by step i go to again remember my very first gig in america was uh, comedy works in denver which still to me is one of the best comedy clubs in the world and i was Man, nervous as fucking shit. I know how I know how Christian this country is. Everyone in the world knows how Christian this country is. It's like it's you you sing about it all of the time. Like it's it's on your money, yeah. you psychopaths. Um, you're so violently religious here, and uh, I'm like, but it's just a joke. Mm-hmm. It's just a joke. And I go to Denver, and I'm a bit worried about doing it there. And yeah, it gets but it gets a similar reaction to the. The Edinburgh reaction, which is some people get annoyed, but the rest of them take it for what even the religious people in the room who where their faith is strong laugh at the joke because yeah. they're like, it's just a funny joke. Yeah. And then in Indianapolis, like I was like, I'd heard it was a red state and I'd heard it was much more, you know, center. And my, my agent, uh, Joanne, uh, was just like, she was like, no, she's like, genuinely don't, don't fucking do it there. And I didn't do it for to two of the shows in Indiana. I just didn't do it. I sort of dipped my toe in the water by doing my gay penguin routine mm. there. And I'm like, and, it, and the gay penguin routine went down well. Yeah. Right? It went down well every single night. And uh, the host at the time was a comic and a friend of mine called Brad Scott. And I told him the joke backstage. I was like, I'm never going to do it here. And he was like, oh, you know, you should, you know, I think you should tell it. And, uh, I go on stage, and my logic was that they're laughing at a gay penguin joke, right? So you can't be, <laughs> you can't laugh at a joke about gay penguins and be religious. Like sure. it's like it's like you you've made your bed. You don't like the gay, so if you're laughing at a joke which is very pro-gay, you can't also be pro-God. Those aren't my words; those are literally mm. your words. Well, at least in the time in which this joke is yes, being performed. Yes, yes, uh, and, and especially in this part of the country yeah. as well. Uh, this is the we're not gonna we're not gonna say yeah gay cake flip part right <laughs> yeah, so I'm yeah. like clearly I've found the only atheists in Indiana and uh, I go on st- stage and I do the joke and it 
two or three people laugh. My memories of it's quite fucking skewed because it was scary. But a man in the front, you know, lifted up his shirt, showed me his gun and said, you're lucky I don't shoot you. <laughs> and now in hindsight, I understand he was never going to shoot me. Yeah. It was just gun banter. Yeah. But I come from a country that doesn't have guns. We don't have gun banter. It's a new level of humour that I'm not used to. I'm just a 22 or 3-year-old looking at a man with a gun and he's just threatened to shoot me. And they're they're so annoyed. They're, they are visibly upset to the point where people storm out. Uh, um, I finish my set as quickly as I can. I go off and I'm fucking hiding the back room. People are trying to get back in because they're so fucking angry. They're trying to get refunds. They're yelling at the staff, which makes me feel like a piece of shit. I don't give a fuck if I don't get yelled at, if I get yelled at. But I don't want the staff having to take mm-hmm. the brunt of my actions. They're suffering the consequences for what I did. That makes me feel uh, like shit. But yeah, they get they get annoyed, annoyed to the point where I'm like, well, I'll obviously never tell this fucking <laughs> joke in America again. Like, it's just not... Because being shot, being shot's not an option yeah. in the UK. It was a new level of there's. I've you know I'm I'm fearless on stage in Scotland because that's not a threat. Like you can stab me, but it'll take you a while, and I'll see you coming, and yeah, yeah. hopefully someone, or you know, you'll throw a pint glass, or you know, there's still ways of violence, but it's a you know it's a fucking gun. So you you also tell uh, a story of a man complaining uh, about. Th- I mean, I don't know if maybe that was just for the joke where the what ends up being the next part of the joke of, oh, I like comedy, but I don't like jokes. I can like I like jokes about Jesus. Oh, that was that guy was that was that guy was an amalgamation of all of the people Mm -hmm. there, all of the complaints. But I just personified him into one thing to make me look like the hero. (laughs) So what did you learn about yourself in that moment? What did you learn about comedy in that moment? What did you learn about America? Uh, what I learned about myself is I'm not as brave as I thought I was, uh, maybe, and maybe stupider than I thought it was. I learned that I should fucking listen to my agent sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I learned at what point, you know, how, how far I'm willing to antagonize. Yeah. And I still will, you know, and I, you know, but I didn't, I didn't dip a toe across the line. I fucking sprinted across it and, and tore down you know, all the do not cross signs and shat in someone's yard and did whatever. So I learned uh, that, I, but I did also enjoy it. I learned that you can get fucking material out of it. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> like I, I survived it. So in all honesty, I learned nothing. That thrill in, in a way where you're like, that is, that's something that I need to chase or not even chase, but like there's but, something magical about that. There is. I don't, I don't know who you are. I don't know your fucking name. I don't know who you are. Yeah, I have this. I can evoke this much mm-hmm. of a reaction from you. That's insane. Why would you give me this level of power? And it is a power. Like, you know, it blows my mind when people online go, this joke really upset me. And I'm like, fucking thanks for the spinach. I'm going to turn more into Popeye here. Like, you're fueling, you're letting me know the control and the rent space I have in your head. And it's, uh, I, l- I like that uh, in a really cunty way. <laughs> you grew up in the UK, but you you, you know you, you watched American stand-ups, and you but you were seeing final products for the most part. And then you, now you're an American stand-up, ostensibly. How did it sort of fill out your picture of like what it means to be a stand-up in America? 
Uh, what I will say about, uh, and this might piss a lot of people off, I think the top 10% of uh, American comedians are the best in the world, bar none. Uh, you've got a few outliers from the uh, rest of the world, like Scotland's, we've obviously got like Billy Conley, mm. but the top 10% of American comics are the best in the world. Then you've got the next 15% who are really good, like really good, but what I would say is as good as like the best mm. in the UK. And then the bottom 75 are the worst fucking stand-ups in the fucking world, bar none. Shockingly mm. appalling. Like, because you don't fear your audience. And it shook, man. I remember the many gigs when I started coming over to LA and just being so fucking nervous. Just be like, I'm in a different, I'm in America, man. I'm in America, the capital of fucking comedy. And just people going on stage and just talking about their fucking day, <laughs> just telling people what they had for fucking lunch, their shitty opinions that they wrote down in a fucking car. No respect for the audience, no respect for themselves, no respect for the fucking art. And I'm like, I'm going to fucking crush it. Like and it and I and I did because mm. I went on with punchlines. Like yeah. I remember, like the, the first minute, just going gag 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 because I was so I'm like fucking I can do this, yeah. And I and look and, and yeah, that's gonna piss people off. I mean it though. Like I, sincerely, go to the rest of the world and see what the, the, their open mic scene like. The Australian, the young scene in Australia is amazing. The amount yeah. of brilliant comics that are coming out there is amazing. Even in fucking places like Russia, their scene is, is fucking growing. There's Eastern Europe. There's all these new scenes are coming up. New York's a bad example because everyone here wants to be a comedian, whereas every comedian in LA wants to be an actor or a TV mm. presenter, which I don't resent, by the way. I resent it in a bit of, you know, you're taking stage time off of people who genuinely want to do this for a living. But the game is the game. I'm, I'm not going to begrudge anyone for taking opportunities and taking advantage of it. But it fucking shows that that there's just not a love of the craft and yeah. a love of the craft that the rest of the world has because we grew up watching that 10%. We grew up watching that amazing 10% and then via podcast finding out about the 15% and being like, fucking hell, have you heard of, have you heard of Pete Holmes? Have you heard of Patrice O'Neill? Have you heard of Technitara? Have you heard of all these? And yeah. you're getting so excited. You're like, oh, I've discovered it. And obviously these comedians are big here, but we didn't know about them yeah, until yeah. podcast. That's exciting. So that's what you think American comedy is. You're like, they're all, oh my God, they're so good. And then you've got this bottom fucking 75 who've never watched stand-up in their fucking life or they did watch stand-up and they misunderstood it. They misunderstood it. They went, I've watched this comedian walk on stage and casually talk about things. All I'm going to do is go on stage and casually talk about things. And it fucking shows. What you're responding to is there, there is a level that you're allowed to exist at in comedy that is not as demanding and still be a comedian, partly because of there's large swaths of audiences who do not expect anything more. Because it's a system of clubs instead of like you're doing shows and people are not showing up, they're showing up just to see comedy instead of they're showing up to see a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you have two options, right? When you're, you have an audience that's not yours. You can either be like, I'm going to make it undeniable yep. that I am who I am and they're going to become a fan of mine. Yeah. Or it's like, I need to get through this. I'm going to just do what I need to get through, which is not seeing comedy as a craft or an art. It's yep. seeing it as a job. Yes. I, and I don't, <laughs> but I, yeah. and that is a little bit different because, because you can have it as a job in that way. It mixed with 
you can also sort of like do comedy as sort of a hobby while being yeah. a famous person. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll agree with that. But I also, for me, man, I, lo- I love this fucking job yeah. so much. So if you don't, I get annoyed by in the UK, you get comedians that are complaining, but I don't like this job. And I go, quit. Fuck yeah. off. Fuck, fuck off. We don't need any more of you. Right? If you do not love this, fuck off and stop wasting your time. Do you know how lucky it is to be in a job that you genuinely fucking love? How rare that is in the world? And especially a job where you work, what, two hours a night? You get to travel, people fucking adore you. You don't love that? You don't take that seriously? Get out. Yeah. Get out. Like you don't, you don't respect that audience. No matter who they are, the ones that came out, they booked, they booked a babysitter, they booked time off, they fucking, they waited week to fucking see you, mm-hmm. or even not just you, but they came out to a fucking comedy club, and you have the fucking audacity to not try. Fuck off. Yeah, I, I, I don't respect it. <laughs> so, and I will say, I will just, just because yeah. I was going to piss off a lot of my comics. I did pull those percentages out of my ass, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it's... He didn't count. He's yeah. not, he doesn't have a name of who's the first example of the <laughs> yeah, worst yeah, comedian yeah. in America. Um, so, that, so as a result, you have sort of this core joke and then the story of a man pulling a gun out at you and, uh, the gun out at you and also sort of the follow-up story of just sort of the audience complaining reaction that you, you cultivate. And so this whole routine... You, I believe you're doing the 2014 Edinburgh show, really. And then, of course, this becomes a part of 2015 show, Dark. Um, I think this joke is a good way to sort of talk about Edinburgh shows as a whole, which, you know, they can range from hours of jokes that are more similar to, like, a very traditional American stand-up to a whole piece like a Nanette, which mm. I think is probably the most popular in America of that those shows. So how did you build a show? How did it, how does a joke like this fit into both? And then I guess sort of as you think about how this joke fits into dark opposed to really, what does it say about how you sort of constructed dark? Well, dark was, uh, dark was, uh, we named it just because everyone was calling me dark and I was just so sick of being called dark. And I was like, right, fucking just own it and talk about that. And because I don't see myself as dark, obviously. Um, the, but that was one of my darkest, darker jokes, ones yeah. that I knew, uh, you know, would evoke that reaction. Um, but it became part of the narrative in a way, like, cause it, you, that was the show, which I didn't mean, I didn't mean yeah. for the show dark to be dark. It, you know, I came to America and I wrote a joke about, I was, did a show where you, I got to talk about something I'd never spoken about on stage. And that's when I started speaking about my sister, Josie. And that was the this first- This was at risk. Yes, it was at risk in LA. And it went really well. And it was uh, the only reason I, I then suddenly realized I'd listened to Tignataro's Live as well. Mm-hmm. And just that thing of where you just go, oh, fuck. Like, I, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was an option. That's That's amazing. She really inspired that sort of honesty, the rawness of- of truth and, and uncomfortableness, but and that silences in comedy aren't necessarily bad when you're in control of them. I want to have a sense of, especially dark, which sort of fits as a, you know, you're. It's not a narrative necessarily, but you, as happens, sort of. It then also happens in Jigsaw and and X, where you sort of like at the beginning of the show, you'll joke about a subject area in a, a straight joking way, mm. and then the end of the show, as you described you do sort of a 20 minute ted talk which often looks at one of the subjects you've already talked about but in a much more serious way and i think in dark which is sort of the first where i think you 
figured it out, which is sort of you do quote unquote dark comedy and then you're like this dark comedian you saw, this is the why of it. Yes. Is that how, how did you land on that opposed to a a integrated show or, you know, like that style of I'm going to do jokes that are sort of around and then, you know, two sort of separate with a sort of harsh turn. Dumb luck, sheer dumb luck (laughs) and coincidence. There was never my intention with any of those shows. Uh, like the show Dark was just going to be a compilation of jokes, which is what my shows essentially always are. Uh, and then the the narrative came in, and it ju- they just fit like the story about Josie just complimented the stuff, and and then I realised that there was a through line, and through performing it every day at the fringe as well, your brain suddenly goes, oh, connection, connection, yeah. connection. So it naturally tightens the more you perform it. Same thing happened uh, with with Jigsaw. Um, was, you know, and the end of Jigsaw didn't work for so long. Like it was, uh, I couldn't get that joke working because I I was just so angry at people in shitty relationships. I was just yelling at the audience, just going, the reason you're all in these fucking relationships is because you're all lonely and you're all pathetic being single. And the audience goes, what are you fucking, (laughs) what is this? This is horrible. And my best friend, uh, Jean, she hadn't even seen the show. And she goes, I know exactly what you've done without even saying the show. It's what you always do, which is you've made it about them and you need to make it about mm-hmm. you. How did how did you how did you arrive at these conclusions? And and I, and the second I turned it back on myself and went, oh fuck, okay. It it tied in and then it started working. And then when it started working I got more passion in it in it. And once again th- then it became I went, these are the forty minutes of these are the forty minutes of jokes. And then there's this end joke, which is just has a little bit of a serious bit. And then it all, it's all the ingredients mm. and then it becomes the cake. It was, it's genuinely never intentional. Even with X, especially, was it once again, X was just going to be just another hour of jokes where I occasionally would talk about toxic masculinity and the love of my goddaughter. And then my, my friend sexually assaulted my other friend. And I was just, I, I can't not talk mm-hmm. about this. Like, it is on my mind. Especially, like, I do like being honest on stage. I do think it's important. And I remember writing the show and doing previews of it in small parts of Scotland. And I'm and just going, I'm not saying what I want to say. I'm saying some of what I want to say. I'm talking about topics, topics I want to talk about. But I'm not saying what I want to actually uh, say. And then... I started writing it with my uh, my other friend, the end bit, just to get obviously the the tone right, and then it naturally, coincidentally, tied in with the yeah. toxic masculinity stuff. Uh, and so there's th- there's parts of you that you're doing what you're doing, and because of comedian, you connections happen that are not control. Your brain is figuring it out, and yeah. then like, oh look at this, I've done. I, I've never sat down and went, I'm going to write a show. Yeah, I've I, I write jokes, and then I put those jokes together into a show. And then I've been really fucking, you know, lucky that they have then formed together mm. to coalesce into this this narrative. But I've never been like, all right, okay, act one, act two, act three. Yeah. Um, so this is this period is a really interesting thing as an American c- consumer of comedy, which is so you do dark in 2015, you tour it a little bit, but 2016 you're now doing Jigsaw, you tour that a bit. And you filmed that. Mm-hmm. 2017, you're now working on another show that I guess became Now. So Yeah, Now, <laughs> which is going to be renamed Socio, which is, was filmed in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's been We filmed that last year. So, but by the time you're done touring, 
dark. Mm. You from what I heard you explain, like you knew you were going to do it for Netflix, but the timing of that was sort of held back. Oh yeah. So yeah. then, so, so which means there's a sort of this period where you're working on other shows and dark sort of exists. Yeah, yeah, and and it, and it does it does my fucking head, and it's and I still have it now. I I fucking hate having a back catalog. I hate it so much. I want I, I own. It's so hard to look forward when you've got things behind you. The fact that Socio is now is driving me insane. It does mess with the sort of idea that a comedian goes like you're seeing a comedian what they were at that time but yours are sort of jumping all over the place I because we've <laughs> like when I finally filmed Dark like I was too yeah I was I was too Dark was dead Dark was two years fucking old and finished and wasn't even filmed and then we uh, while I was on the socio to the now tour that I get the Netflix deals um, but yeah. it was in the past so I had to go back and revisit the show which I didn't mind by the way like because you know the show Dark on Netflix was not, it's nowhere, it's way better than what the show Dark was. It was fun to go back to those jokes and perform them better, like as a better comic. That was that was nice. There's a, a video that I saw of you doing this joke in 2016, and the only real difference, it's, you know, it's pretty much, especially the second half is almost exactly the same, but the, the lead up. Is the Christmas part is much longer by 2018. Yeah. Do you think that reflects just one doing it more and also how you grew as a comedian and sort of the comfort in not having to rush to the joke? A hundred percent, yes. I was getting that. Uh, I was I was less terrified of my audiences. Yeah, like it was, and it was no longer about. You know, I I knew I knew I was going to make them laugh. I knew where the punchlines were, so I could be. You know, I could meander up to them slower and enjoy the performance more. Because watching, you know, so many of the great American comedians, the act house, I've always loved. For me, it's the, you know, Bill Burr's helicopter bit. Where, yeah. or, or, you that's know. So, that helicopter, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because that special came out between when you finished working on Dark and when you filmed Dark. Because oh, I, I, I was going to, it's, it's just like literally the next question was going to be about if you, the special that came out between that time. So that's from Walk Your Way Out, where he ends with this big helicopter bit. Aye. Talk about watching Bill Burr, because you, unlike certain comedians, don't watch other comics, but you seem, you've talked about how you study. Yeah. Like, like it blows my mind that the comedians don't watch other comics. Like, if, if, do, you, do you reckon footballers who aren't in the World Cup final don't fucking watch the World Cup final? They're not <laughs> watching the chat. What are you doing? Do you yeah. love this game or not? Like, I've watched comedy since I was five years old. I love it, man. And I understand the fear of that people have of I don't want to be fucking influenced. I'm like, I do. I absolutely do. I want to see what the, the best are doing and be fucking inspired. Like, I, seeing comedians at the top of their game going, I didn't, Tig Natana doing that left out of going, I didn't know I could do that. Bill Barr, that helicopter bit. I didn't know mic technique could be so impressive. I didn't know you could play around. Like, the the act house, watching comedians do all these so many impressive bits. I'm like, fucking, why don't I? What, the reason she's the best at this is because she does that. And, 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 and I don't think that's stealing or borrowing. It's being inspired. Yeah. Like, it, it's just going, fucking, okay, okay, we can do more. It's like a chef not eating at other restaurants. Yeah. Sometimes when I write a funny joke, I'm like, fuck, have I heard this on a special somewhere? Yeah. Like, is this my own genuine fucking thought? And that's why it's good to be friends with so many comedians who also love comedy, because I'll always put it in my group chats and be like, has anyone heard a bit about this? Has anyone heard a bit about this? And they'll go, no, 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 we haven't. And uh, thank, thankfully, <laughs> from, from what I know so far, it's um, it does come with a bit of anxiety. But when, when comics don't watch other comics, I'm like, how can you... 
possibly ever expect to be the best if you don't know what the best looks like? Yeah. That's insanity. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Daniel Sloss. In an interview, you said how writing this joke, you know, was a game changer for you. And it was the first time you were like, that's me. I remember that phrasing of you saying that that's me. And it it reminded me of, you know, two stories you tell around your sister's death. Uh, In in Dark, you talk about how your mom knew you were going to be a comedian because after your your sister died, you straight away were sort of making jokes to light in the mood. And your dad remembered is when you were going to be a comedian because even though your sister was dead, you still want to be the center of attention. Yeah. And the other story is the first time you remember you're making your parents laugh was the day your sister was going to be buried and your the a hearse showed up and you called it a limo. Yeah, I thought it was a limo because it looks like a fucking limo. <laughs> and so when you say that's me, you've been doing stand up for a while, but then this joke happens and that's me and you have these experiences who is the you that you saw in this joke? You know, wh- wh- what did you see? It was an it was an opinion. Yeah, it was my it was it was it was my opinion. Like I'm, as you've clearly learned from this conversation, I'm unapologetic in my opinions, and obviously, I think all of my opinions are correct. Before, I was always every joke I told always had that inflection in it. It was always, is this funny? Mm-hmm. Is this funny? And that's not how I talk in real life. That's not how I make people laugh in real life. I go, this is fucking funny. I'm going to tell you this thing. That was the first time when it was, there was no, there was no question in my voice. And I, and I, and I, and I, I felt like a stand-up. And so for me, it was, a, it was a real routine. And it was the first time I'd ever had rolling laughter, like truly, mm-hmm. like where laughter carried on between jokes. So the silences were filled by choir smatterings of laughter, you know, which which uh, when I was in a, when I'm in an audience and I'm watching comedy, like 
I love the first big laugh. But I, lo I love being tickled for so long afterwards as well, when you just, you've still got that, you're not laughing anymore, but you've got that smile and the occasional just the ha comes out. This joke, there's more personal jokes where I, it, every year I become more me and it's, yeah. it's very exciting. But that was the first time where I think if you'd ask my friends or my friends and my parents, they go, oh, that's, Oh, mm. they, that's yeah, that's Sloss. That's that's Danny. That's DJ. That's that's the guy we know. Because before then, I, I was a, not necessarily an overly different person on stage, but was just was just being a cheeky chappy or doing these sort of jokes. Yeah. And I that was oh, there he is. That's he, our mate. It's interesting because the way you say you do more personal things, it sounds like this joke said you can be you. Yes. Yeah. Hundred percent. I. And, and and still get laughs. I was trying to be anything else but me. Mm -hmm. And then this was the first time that they were laughing at something personal to me. Like, and they were agreeing with me. That's one of my most, you know, saying, having horrible thoughts in your head and then saying them in front of an audience is thrilling because there's the 30% who go, no, no, we wouldn't. And then there's the 70 who've also had this thought or something close mm -hmm. to it. And hearing it out and out loud, they go, yes. And that's what comedy's always been for me, is somebody went on and told me an opinion I didn't know I had. Yeah. They went on and they just, when I went, fucking yes, I, I, but you put it so succinctly. You put it, you took a bunch of thoughts from my brain and you smashed it together in a sentence and you made it fucking funny. So, yeah, I, I was thinking about this joke for a while before I, you know, we, I knew we were going to talk about it and I was thinking about this joke. And it wasn't until, I think this morning, that I was like, this joke is making fun of this person who just survived cancer. And I was like, the the person you chose yeah. to is a person who went through a very long battle with cancer. And, you know, in in the States, I don't know if it's a universal term, but people throw around the idea of punching up and punching mm -hmm. down a lot. And I think it's a, it's a bit of an inexact term. So I, no, I don't know. I think. I, that's um that, that's not my opinion. That's your opinion. That's that's like the what that mm -hmm. that cancer bit. Me making fun of the cancer bit. That's not what I'm doing. That's what you're doing. That's what you're saying. I'm being you. And yes, it is fucking horrific. Yeah. Like that's the thing. This isn't my opinion. This is your opinion in its raw form of what it is. This is what you think, and I'm showing it to you. And I bet you fucking hate it because I fucking hate it. So it, I want to talk broadly about how you think about the subjects or targets in so much as you've told the story of it's interesting you have it's it's one joke you used to tell which um and which ultimately gets at both is which is um in america uh you say uh obesity is a disease mm -hmm. but being gay is a choice yeah and you stopped doing that joke because someone who was overweight reached out and said this was offensive or not offensive. This hurt my feelings, not offensive. Hi. And, I mean, and, but also a person around, I believe, at the same time was like, thank you for telling these jokes. It inspired me to come out to my parents. Can you talk about how you think about it and how maybe that's evolved? Um, I, look, I, I, don't, I don't want to upset people. I don't. It's, yeah. not, it's not my job to upset people. I didn't get into this job. I want to make people laugh. And and sometimes when you're trying to make someone laugh, you don't. And sometimes you hurt them. And it's not black and white. Like yeah. sometimes you get it wrong, right? And I think we should be allowed to get it wrong. Like that's that's what this part of this job is. But I'll work out whether I give a fuck if I offended someone. Yeah. And sometimes I do. Sometimes if somebody goes, hey, 
I know you said this and I know it was just a joke, but it felt like you were saying this and I'll go, oh, well, that's not what I was saying. I didn't want, e-. and I'll take that on board. That That's, again, that's not censorship. Yeah. That's nothing like that. That's being a human being capable of empathy and learning and going, okay, you know, I, if, if somebody came up and uh, with the punching down thing and they were like, it felt like you were attacking me in this or, or my people in this, I would go, well, one was I, and if I wasn't okay, uh, do, is it worth changing the lines? Is it, is mm. it important to change the lines in this? Because I don't want it to come across as insulting a type of person that I'm not yeah. insulting. Or is this person just being fucking overly sensitive? Yeah. And it's it, it's it's different each and every time, but I am open to it all of the time. Yeah, I mean, I imagine if, if like, lots of cancer patients were like, this broke my heart, you'd be like, this is not worth it. That's not, of that, course not. that's a failure of the yeah, joke. Yeah, man. If they came up and they were like, hey, that really upset me. But what I found in all these jokes, in all, and, and it's what happens all the time, is it's never those people that are offended. Yeah. It's my friend's mum's dog's babysitter had cancer and it upset me. And I go, you're too far removed for me to give a shit. Don't give a fucking shit. You jumped in front of a bullet that wasn't aimed for you. That's not your fucking right. Doesn't make you a hero. Stop pretending to be one. So let, let's talk about that that person's offense. And, 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 you know, you've talked about offensiveness as a narcissistic act. All these people are laughing. How dare you to be like, I'm offended. Mm-hmm. But I want to put this to you. You know, I've talked to Anthony Jeselnik about this. And uh, he goes, comedy without political correctness is like football without the football. And though he's probably talking about American football, I think yeah, the metaphor yeah. works with all the types of football. Um, which is, if there are no lines, you are not pushing anything. I I choose what lines I want to cross, and then I choose if they're worth sort of crossing again. Like, do it's just about whether I whether I give a shit that you're yeah. um, upset. I like going over the lines in different ways, I, but I don't go over it for the sake of, or at least I don't think I do. I don't go over the line for the sake of going, no, that's definitely not true. I absolutely do. <laughs> but I think when I <laughs> when I go over the line for the sake of going across the line, I really try to make it obvious, being like, hey, 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 this isn't my opinion, mm-hmm. but I'm going to say it because having this opinion would be fucking awful. If you sincerely thought this, you would be the worst person in the world. But I clearly don't mean this. That's why this is funny, because I'm pretending to have this horrible opinion and taking it to its furthest extremes. And when people are offended by that and I go, you didn't, you genuinely didn't get the joke, right? They go, but you said this. And I go, yes, but I meant this. I'm not explaining, I'm not explaining uh, sarcasm to you. I'm not explaining that joke to you. Yeah, and you're deciding how many how many people not getting it is worth? Yes, it, and and it changes all the time. And and I have been wrong before, and I will be wrong again. It, in uh, I saw you perform recently, and you were talking about the idea of how rats laugh. Mm-hmm. Is it okay to bring this? I don't want to Wait, ruin material. No, no, no. Can you talk a little bit about the the idea of learning about rats laugh? Uh, yes, there was a, there was a great uh, comedian called Shane Moss who had a podcast where he, he was basically talking about uh, laughter. And it was one of the things that really stuck out uh, to me that there was scientists had done experiments where it's basically the, if you tickle a rat's belly, it will sort of let out joyous little squeaks, which is a la- rat's, uh, rat's version of laughter. And obviously it's the sensation of being tickled, but what else is making the, them enjoy that? And it's because any other time the rat's having its belly 
openly exposed like that with something at it as a death sentence. Yeah. It's, it's being attacked, it's about to be killed. But this is a safe version of that, and that's why it's fun. It's like, if this was happening for real, this would be fucking horrendous. But it's not happening for real, so, oh, this is this is dangerous. And this is, it's dangerous, but it's safe. Like, it's... You know, it's it's thrilling. It's like yeah. uh, the reason roller coasters are exciting because you go, I shouldn't be going this fast. This is fucking insane, and that's what comedy is. A lot of time you go, I shouldn't be saying this, but I am. Yeah. I'm not doing the things I'm saying. I'm pretending to do the things I'm saying. It's you know, it's a it's a safe violation. Yeah, and sometimes you you know you get it you get it wrong. Sometimes I explain afterwards, like, uh, you know, when people take offence to things, they'll go, right, allow me to explain to you why you're not allowed to be offended yeah. at that, and it's because of these reasons. And I think that's a good way of doing it, just going, hey, hey, let's take us. Hey, we were just in the joke, we were just in the joke, and it upset some of us, so let's step outside of the joke, and let's all look what made these idiots upset, but while still being, you know, gentle and understanding, but making them understand, they go, hey, 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 yeah. I'm not denying the fact that it upset you, but you need to understand that my intent was not to do that. I yeah. did, I did. I'm not fucking apologising for it, right? I'm not. If you want an apology from a comedian, go find a lesser one. Mm-hmm. But let's together, let's together make the, make you understand yes. it. And because I've done that so much in the past now, I have an audience that, that knows, and that's such a privilege. It's, you know, watching the... You, you watch Dark, Jigsaw, and X in order... And it's somewhat like watching the sort of arc of a superhero in so much as like dark. It's like he's found out his powers and jigsaw where you've caused all these breakups. Uh, What's number at now? Thousand. Uh, I think the divorces is about 100. Oh, I got told about another one last night. 158. So it causes 150. So you're like, oh, my jokes have impact. And then X is I'm now using this power to persuade to do something. I well, not even X wasn't really about persuading, but the thing about X for me was, I don't, I don't think men are fucking bad people inherently. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, I think a lot of the time we're ignorant. But here's the other thing: yelling at men doesn't work. It would, oh, it would be lovely. It would be so good if yelling at men worked, but it doesn't. Because I know when you yell at me, I shut the fuck down and I stop listening. Uh, uh after everything happened, I understood. The stuff I'd been ignorant about, you know, being amongst, you know, sexual assault and feeling complicit in things and, you know, the guilt that comes with fucking, you know, was I responsible for this? If I was responsible for this, how much was I responsible for this? How much of the onus is on me to uh, be better? And just going, oh, fuck, I didn't know. Like, it's it's, everything afterwards, like, oh, it was so, it's so obvious now what was happening. But that's the thing about ignorance is it's, it's, you don't know. So it would be very easy with X to have gone and written a show. And uh, early iterations of it was, you know, halfway through, I get a standing ovation from the women in the room. And I'm like, and I had to rewrite that bit because I did, and I hated, it was really difficult because I was, obviously it's there to empower survivors. But when they were whooping and cheering points, I'm like, no, 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 stop it. The men are listening. Stop, for the love of God, don't alienate them. Don't, I'm not, you do not blame them for things. Do not yell at them. Explain things gently to them in the same way that I've had things carefully and delicately explained to me over the years. And and there were so many times, especially in America, where you have this fucking cancerous whooping culture in comedy where, uh, and people were like, whoa, and I'm like, don't, like, you're destroying the message. Yeah. It, this isn't about blaming men f- for things. This isn't about blaming anyone for everything. This is just, you know, I, I don't need to convince the women in the audience of anything. Yeah. Right? I don't need to. 
I'm not I'm not there to change their minds or even there. For the guys, I'm there to just go, lads, this happened to me. I didn't do enough. So just be be a bit more vigilant. And it, you know, starts the starts a, a, a dialogue. I want to ask about how goal like if you're goal oriented or what motivates you. I think I was hearing you talk the other day about how you decided whether or not to put a trigger warning before mm-hmm. X. And I think that sort of gets at it. Can you explain the yeah. thinking? Like I, so before when when we were touring X on the roads, I had, uh, you know, when talking about sexual assault, whether I like it or not, my audience is about 55% female. Um, so of that, about 20 to 30%, and again, these are numbers I'm pretty much pulling out of my ass, but they're roughly that. 30% of them will have experienced some form of sexual assault in their life. And that's not even including the men in the room who have experienced yeah. some form of sexual assault in their life. I am, whether I like it or not, bring up sexual assault, I'm bringing up something that affects almost a quarter of the room in some way or another, minimum. And you don't get to decide how people react to that. You don't get to tell them they're being oversensitive when they've gone through something like that. And I wanted to make sure that I was listening. It's very possible that as a straight white man who has not been sexually assaulted, that while talking about sexual assault, I'd get things wrong. Yeah, That's very likely. So when I was talking to survivors after this show, and because I did, that's why I always did meet and greets after the show, because I wanted to talk, I wanted to, I wanted to be corrected on things. Yeah. Because it was one of the very few times where I go, I do care. I do care if this upsets me. The last people I want to upset in that room is survivors. This joke is for them. So there were many times when, you know, it was a really difficult show to do. I had to have blinders on the stage so I couldn't see the audience mm-hmm. because I, I, the second you start talking about it, you, I can read body language. Yeah. You know who it's happened to. And people get upset because you're bringing up the worst moment in their life and they're allowed to react in that sad way. But it it put me off or, or it fucked up my timing because, you know, I don't want to upset people. Yeah. And then we would occasionally have walkouts. They were never angry walkouts. They were never rage. Oh, you can't. It was fucking buddy. This is too, too much. much. Yeah. This is too much. And I had many discussions where I, it came up with survivors. They were like, I just think you should put a trigger warning on the show. And I was, I would say, if I put a trigger warning on the show, it's going to deter the type of men who should see the show from seeing the show. Because, fuck it, man, I'll be honest, if you put a trigger warning on the show, I'm going to be like, oh, what the fuck is this shit? Mm. Was this oversensitive? You know, I would have that reaction, and I didn't want it to do that. Also, I think it would take away the impact. So, yeah. trigger warning, this contains stories about sexual assault. Part of the fucking impact is them not knowing what it's about. So I had this conversation once, and then I had this conversation twice, and then I had this conversation three times. And every time the survivor was like, I get your point. I'm like, hey, this is grey. There is no right mm-hmm. or wrong to this. Like, I am really sorry, but, and I do take on board what you're saying, but I do think I'm right in not putting the trigger warning on. And then we were in San Francisco and three women walked out in a row. And I was like, that's that's the end of my argument. Yeah. It's, it's all over, right? That's, it's it's one too many. Well, it's, it's fucking six too many altogether. <laughs> But now it's now it's it has to be changed. And fortunately, uh, on the tour, we didn't have to do it via a big. We didn't have to put it on the posters yeah. because my support act Kai was able to just do it yeah. before he was like just at the end of his say. He was like just to let you know, Sloss does what he always does, which is tackles hard topics. He's going to be talking about uh, pedophiles. He's going to be talking about uh, sexual assaults with that. So it was an easier way yeah. to get it in, but. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very glad those conversations happened. You know, we were talking throughout this entire interview, your ability to sort of talk about tough subjects, your your 
ability to do dark material broadly defined. Um, do you feel the need to, to talk about dark stuff? Do you think about um, you? I've heard you say that doing X took a toll on you doing that so many times. I, you know, I saw you the other night. And I was like, he's his material right now is very silly. Like, I... do you think about like what is your material without that? Is that something that interests you? Um, yeah, no, I want to. I want to get back to s- straight stand up, man. Like, it's what I love most in the world. It just so happens that you know I did three shows that had heavy subject matter, but they were not intentional. The shows yeah. became those shows. To start, that's why the next tour is called Hubris, mm-hmm. because you know it, it's. You, I'm known for this one thing. I don't want to corner myself into the thing. I don't want to be known as the guy that does that. I don't owe my audience that. I don't owe my audience anything other than what I find funny. Yeah. But what I'm not going to do is walk around going, what can I say? What can I say? What's 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 yeah. what's Daniel Sloss's uh, deep and profound opinion on this today? That's forced. Yeah. None of the other shows were ever forced. They happened and were created naturally, and that's why the way they were. And this next show is just... Like, I, I want to... I want to be one of the best at stand-up. I, yeah. I, like, just one of the bits where you, you know, I want people to watch me in the same way I watch Bill Barr. Just go and fucking teach me, King. Just <laughs> let me learn. From, and, 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 yeah. So you, uh, in an interview you did a while ago, it was a small aside, but you, you talked about how Edinburgh has a prize for the best comedy show, but not the funniest comedy show. Yeah. And as you said, you, you're pretty... <laughs> vocal about your desire to be the best comedian in the mm-hmm. world. So what does that mean to you? People that make you think, like when you when you still think about the routines days later. I remember the first time I saw, I, I always watch stuff at the Edinburgh Festival every single year with my dad. And I remember the first time I saw Jim Jeffries live. Like he was making points. He was talking about subjects. And after the show, me and my dad would be talking about the subjects and and then and then and then months later, when that topic came up, I would be like, "Oh, you heard Jim Jeffries was mm-hmm. about this." Like like jokes that jokes that exist outside of the special. That's the best when when it sticks out beyond. You know, yes, it's hysterical. Like yes, it's it's funny, but there is just something more. It resonated with a different part of my brain other than just the the, the rat tickling but it, it gave me something more or it changed my mind yeah. or it made me more open to an idea like I've definitely had I've had opinions changed by stand-up comedians by routines I've watched it and gone fuck I'd never considered it that way I, that's mm. real power that's that's the best it's, it's you know just so much more than just just the laughter that being said the laughter is the most important part of it That sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Uh, do you have a favorite joke? Joke. One always pops to my mind, and it's it's not even it's not it's it's not. There's a bit of political incorrectness, sure, in this, yeah, but not in a bad way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what noise does a gay shark make? Uh, what? Just always tickled me. Um. <laughs> Is there a joke you wish you could steal uh, in so much as you? it is now out of whosoever act it was in, it is now in your act, everything else in the world is the same, no one's going to yell at you for stealing, it's always been yours? Uh, oh, God. Um, so I'll tell you what, uh, fucking if I could 
uh, we think we know you, Bo Burnham's routine. Yeah. Fucking, that was one of the times when you want to talk about the best. That was, as a comedian, I watched that routine and I went, oh, Bo wrote that for me. Oh, that was real nice of Bo to write specifically a routine just for me. What a nice, swell thing of that lovely man to do. I'd love that one. Yeah, yeah, um, So you've performed all over the world, and I was thinking, I'd like you to pick the three best and three worst cities to perform in, but just list all of them so it doesn't look like you're throwing any city out on the bus. Oh, Kilmarnock worst. I'll, right now, I'll tell Kilmarnock in okay. Scotland, I've, I will never gig there ever fucking again. Fuck everyone from that city. Um, <laughs> All right, never mind. What are the three worst and what are the three best? Uh, Adelaide and I say Adelaide. They know they get a shit time. I'll fuck. I'll see you April and I'll say it to your fucking faces. You pieces of shit. You you suck. Your city sucks. Um, they're awful. God, who else? Indiana. Indi- <laughs> that's not true. I went to Indianapolis last year and they were actually fucking great. And then best audience is New York, mm-hmm. genuinely. Uh, Sydney and uh, Glasgow. Um. You mentioned this at, at the show. What are what are the three best cursing countries in the world? Oh, uh, Scotland, obviously. Australia is exceptional at swearing. They 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 love it. And uh, Irish, the Irish are very good at swearing. And America's the worst. America, oh, you're so <laughs> appalling at it, man. It's just, and I'll say this. I say it in the show. I say it in the podcast. It's twat. It's pronounced twat. For the love of fucking God, on behalf of the rest of the world, stop pronouncing it twat, you fucking imbeciles. It's twat. It rhymes with cat. It rhymes with hat. Twat. Um, last one. Can you do an impression of yourself? <laughs> oh, look at me. I hate God. Oh, oh I'm so fucking woke. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Great. That's it. We did it. Hey, thank you so much. That's it for another episode. You can stream Dark and Jigsaw on Netflix and X on HBO Now and HBO Go. Follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel underscore Sloss and on Instagram at Daniel Sloss. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Art Chung. Gotham Shrinkishin did our theme song. Editorial assistance from Amanda Gordon and Emily Sin. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Sarah Schaefer. Have a good one. <laughs>